Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, December 15, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at fallspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, getting ready for a conversation with Jonathan Groff that was sponsored by the Drama Desk. Uh, was over last Thursday at Ripley Greer. And so, Michael, tell us, how did it go? Oh, it went really well. He's so wonderful. As I mentioned, he, uh, in a recent New York Times profile of Jonathan, the author of the article described him as beloved mm. by both his colleagues and his fans, obviously. And I think that's very true. He's just one of those sweet, genuine, smart people. And we had a really great turnout. And uh, I think everyone really enjoyed being there. Uh, we talked about so much. Um, I looked up Jonathan's credits. I, I, I thought I was very familiar with him. And for the most part, I am. But although he's only in his mid-30s, he's done so much, uh, including a few things I'd forgotten. He did two roles in London that he hasn't done here yet. Uh, he did Death Trap in London, which I really would have loved to see him as Cliff in Death Trap. And then he also did How to Succeed in London. Did you know that? No. no it was a, a one-nighter with, uh, with um, Cynthia Erivo. As Rosemary. <laughs> How about that? Uh, so he said that was an amazing experience. And then this was also a one-nighter uh, several years ago, uh, a benefit at for the public at the Delacorte. Get this, Pirates of Penzance. Jonathan was Frederick. Perfect. Kevin Kevin Klein recreated his Tony-winning role of the Pirate King. Martin Short was the Major General. Glenn Close... <laughs> Glenn Close was Ruth, Anika Nani Rose was Mabel, and also in it were Eric Idle and Norm Lewis. Wow. So as I said to the audience, if any of you saw that, don't tell me, because I'd mm. just be so jealous. Right, right. Who can blame you? <laughs> and Jonathan, uh, he, um, uh, we did a lot of uh, audience questions, because I knew the audience would, would really want to speak with him. And one question was what he would, uh, if he could look back, what advice he would give himself as a young actor who had just moved to New York. And he said, um, you know, it's, he, he, uh, Jonathan self-deprecatingly often comments that he didn't go to college and, you know, indicating that he's not that smart. But on the contrary, he's, he's so smart. And he said he would tell himself uh, – First thing he would tell himself is uh, everything is going to be okay and try not to worry about whatever insecurities and, and issues you have and everything will work out. In his case, it was being in the closet at the time. Uh, he was not openly gay when he first started his career because most people weren't. Uh, and that only came later and he would tell himself not to worry about that. And, uh, so he uh, but he also said this is such good advice. He said, I would tell myself to read the newspaper, mm. he said, because it takes you out of your head, you know, it, 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 whatever you're worried about, whether it be your 
your uh, sexual orientation or your next audition or where your next apartment's going to be or where your next paycheck is going to come from. It really helps to just know what's going on and uh, be aware of the larger world outside of your little head. And I thought that was such a smart thing to say. So that's the kind of person he is and uh, the kind of smarts that he has. And it was a really wonderful event. Where does one get a newspaper? What is this newspaper <laughs> thing that you talk about? It is funny that he did use the word newspaper. So I guess even he is, uh, you know, it, it's funny the age at which people stop saying that. Uh, I guess, I, I don't know, I, maybe young people still say newspaper. I, I, had a, uh, I had a professor in grad school that was, uh, that was of, of the firm belief that if you read the New York Times cover to cover every day for four years, that that was as good as a, a uh, college degree. Uh, wow. You know. So uh, for those who are uh, FOMO or fear of missing out or fear <laughs> of having missed out already on that, uh, that wonderful discussion between Jonathan and Michael, uh, Susanna Bowling has uh, – has put some videos up on YouTube of this, and they're of very good quality, Michael. Yes, yes, I they mean, are. She did you a wonderful look job. Great, Michael. Oh, why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so does he. You won't be surprised to hear. You know, you're, you're possibly you're the best looking person on Broadway radio right now. So, <laughs> wow, 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 fellas, look at the old girl now, fellas. <laughs> well, that is quite a compliment. <laughs> Thank you. So let's move forward into our answer for last week's trivia. Peter, what say you? Well, uh, the question was, three of his musicals reach Broadway. The third of the three is being performed in New York right now. The second one will open in the city early in 2020, while the first one will open in late 2020. He also wrote the background music for a film version of a famous play that's had no fewer than four Broadway revivals. Who's the writer? What are the three musicals? And what's the name of the famous play? Well, the answer is Meredith Wilson. Miracle on 34th Street, originally called Here's Love, is currently playing at the Argyle Theater on Long Island. That's New York, isn't it? I didn't say yep. New York City. Yeah. All right. Yep. <laughs> the unsinkable Molly Brown will soon begin off Broadway, and the music man will later follow on Broadway. The play was The Little Foxes, for which Wilson wrote the film's incidental music. Mike Meany was the first to get it, followed by... Tony Janicki. When I wrote to Tony to say that he was second, he responded with, I kind of prefer it when others get to be the first from time to time. See, the bigger they are, the nicer they are. You know? <laughs> from time to time is the telling phrase there. I think it is. <laughs> Next came Jed Slaughter, Jack Leshner, Greg Christensen, Brigadude, and Ben Koch. Okay, so uh, later during our broadcast, we will ask you next week's trivia question. Mm -hmm. But until then, let's talk about a little bit of a uh, Broadway theater. So uh, Jagged Little Pill, the Alanis Morissette musical by way of uh, ACT up in Boston and Cambridge, has joined our Broadway family, and Peter and Michael have gotten a chance to see it. So, Peter, why don't you get us started on Jagged Little Pill? 
Well, um, this is a show where white supremacists should stay away. Um, for many of us, that's a statement for all situations. Uh, <laughs> but um, but it's especially true in the case of Jagged Little Pill. White supremacist theater goers, if there are any, which there probably aren't, because theater going makes you a better person. Thank you. Um, will be outraged at uh, what Diablo Cody's book seems to say, because after a prologue that uh, suggests. Um, we'll be watching frenetic dancers who'd set their hair on fire to be noticed. We get to the meat of the story, and that's the Healy family. Dad, Steve, Mum, Mary Jane, son, Nick, are the whitest of white bread. And as we're often told, that's the type of bread that has virtually no nutrients in it. Well, all right. But also on hand is Sis, sister Frankie, the African-Americans that the Healy's adopted at birth. Both kids are teens now. And Nick is doing everything that his parents expect of him, right down to getting that letter from Harvard that tells him he'll be welcome there in the fall. So Cody implies that Nick has been so intent on playing by the rules that he hasn't had the time or the inclination to develop any social consciousness. And we'll see if that situation can change. But as for Frankie... Um, this is not non-traditional casting. She's definitely black. Um, and she complains about, um, her, her parents who adopted her. Uh, she tells her, um, lesbian lover, my friends, uh, I'm sorry, my parents are heroes just for wanting me. And, you know, you could argue after all that, well, they might've done it so they could impress the neighbors that they're so liberal and uh, all that. But the fact is, they took her in. Now, we never find out what um, the situation with the real parents, and um, she's not particularly looking for them, but, um, but we don't find out about that. And so we don't know uh, the situation. But chances are, um, given that they adopted her, the, the mother didn't want her. And I, I would think that a kid would be more grateful um, that um, there's even talk about um, the fact that uh, they're going to have blondies for dessert. And she says, even the brownies are Caucasian. Um, so, and, and you get um, a similar crack later on by another African-American who works at a store. So it does seem like there's anything for a laugh at white people's expense. Now, and then um, when Frankie goes to school, we see the white teacher. And she's shown to be silly, if not stupid. But there is a nice white person on hand, and that's Phoenix, probably the nicest person in the show, who becomes interested in Frankie. Now, remember, as I said, she's in a lesbian relationship now with Joe. And um, so there are going to be complications there. However, however, we see we go to a party uh, the young kids are having and the young kids are behaving terribly uh, by most standards, um, sex and drugs and rock and roll and all that. And uh, one sexual act is by no means sanctioned by the young woman um, who uh, is at the party. She's Bella and um, she's raped. And as a result, we find out that Frankie really rises to the occasion. She is not going to take this lying down. She is definitely going to make sure that um, the perpetrator is brought to justice. So while we think that she, uh, in fact, Mary Jane refers to her having a cause of the week, and this is going to last a lot more than weeks. She is definitely, definitely going to pursue this to the nth degree. And so while we haven't liked her very much 
for being so flip and so difficult when her parents have been so technically good to her. Um, well, now we seem to be more on the side that that takes a tip of the second act as well. But anyway, um, at least we see her redeem herself, uh, let's say for a while. Now the parents have trouble of their own. And I do think that, um, the book writer Cody should really be a little more clear about what's going on here because um, Mary Jane accuses Steve of being a workaholic. It's not quite that the way Cody has written it. This is a guy who seems to know that he has to work 60 hours a week if he's going to support this nice Connecticut upper middle class home and a wife and two children. The wife doesn't seem to work. Mary Jane, I, I don't know if she works. We, we have no indication that she does. She seems to be a stay-at-home mom, and after all, her kids are in high school, so it's a little bizarre. What the mother does do um, is spend a lot of money on drugs. Um, she has tried um, prescription drugs and she's hooked. Now she claims, we, we believe her, she was in an accident. And so she really has had a lot of pain. But the prescriptions that she's been doled out are only good for so long and there can only be refilled so many times. So she starts dealing with um, kids on the street. Uh, who sell drugs. So that's pretty potent. I will say that one, one of the wonderful things of the show is the bookend. Um, and what I mean is what, what is first said by the Heelys when we first see them is something that you certainly get in, <laughs> in the mail. Um, I'm being purposely oblique. And at the end of the show, we see that same scene repeated, but the words are very different because of all that has happened. And um, the music, very good. The lyrics, of course, not so. Um, um, you know me in rhymes and false accents, so they're all there. But, but I have to say that the music is very good, and certainly um, the cast is quite wonderful. Uh, Elizabeth Stanley is Mary Jane Healy, the best I've ever seen her. I do think Derek Kleena as Nick, the 17-year-old, um, is much too old for the part. Um, I did check, and... Um, it won't be all that long before he's 30. So um, uh, Lauren Patton as Joe has the big song, uh, you ought to know. And um, at the performance I attended, she uh, got many people to stand at the end of the number. Now, I've only seen that happen with Jennifer Holliday in the original Dreamgirls and um, John Lloyd Young in uh, Jersey Boys. This is the third time I've seen people stand at the end of a number as opposed to at the end of the show. So I thought Catherine Gallagher was really good as Bella. Uh, the first scene that she has, um, I took a note saying, um, you know, we always hear that expression, there are no small parts, just small actors, but there are small parts. And I thought, whoa, this girl has really made uh, the most of her small part. It turns out it's not a small part. It looked like it was going to be, but it, it wasn't. And she's really, really quite fine. I liked her a great deal. Uh, Antonio Cipriano, very, very tender as Phoenix. So very nice job there. Um, and um, certainly Sean Allen Krill as Steve. A wonderful performance as well. And Celia Rose Gooding um, has to maneuver this very difficult role of, of Frankie, who uh, we could really hate very easily. And um, we have to uh, go with the flow uh, as she changes. So um, I, I do wonder why there have to be two interpretive dancers who come in every now and then and do um, and writhe and um, just do nothing that um, does anything for me, but maybe other people like that very much. And if so, good. Uh, but Diane Paulus has staged it very, very well. 
very well. Um, simple set design, uh, but a nice set design. Pleasure to look at. So, um, so all in all, um, I think Jack and Little Pill is going to be here for quite a while. Okay. Michael, what did you think? Yeah, I don't know about that last statement. It'll, it remains to be seen. I, I don't know what kind of audience this is going to have. Uh, I certainly agree about the cast, starting with Elizabeth Stanley. I've loved her for years, and I thought this was a, a wonderful showcase for her. But everyone in it is great, everyone you named. Um, I do agree also about Derek Klain. If he had been the age for this as he was when he did Bridges of Madison County, <laughs> mm. he would have been perfect for the part. But that was quite some time ago. So mm. that was a little odd, especially since um, I would say most of the other young actors who play teenagers really look like they could be, mm. Um, mm. including Mr. Cipriano or Cipriano, who oddly enough is um, listed with the ensemble in the playbill. Did you see that? Really? Yeah, there are some very odd things in the playbill. They, they made the decision to list the leads uh, by alphabetical order. I'm, I, I guess that's not the first time I've seen that. But uh, on the title page and on the page with the photos, oh, the, first, mean? the first person is Catherine Gallagher, uh, and then Celia Rose Gooding, ah, I see and Eric Klaina, okay. yeah, okay. right? And so, but there are those four. Uh, so gotcha. the the six people on the on the leads page of the photos are Catherine Gallagher, Celia Rose Gooding, Derek Klaina, Sean Allen Krill, Lauren Patton, and Elizabeth Stanley. And then um, Mr. Cipriano uh, is with the ensemble. So I don't know why that was. I think that's. Very strange. Um, another interesting thing, this production is actively, uh, very aggressively, one might say, woke in every okay. possible way, including uh, the bios all begin with the pronouns for each actor. Uh, so in case there's any question about that, and I guess there would be because it does seem that there are several people in the cast who are gender fluid to one degree or another. So it's that kind of a show uh, directed by Diane Paulus, as Peter mentioned. Uh, I think I was going to make a general statement here that that struck me. It seems to me lately I've seen several shows that would have been a lot better if they were just edited more. Uh, this is an example of that. Another show we're going to be talking about in a bit, Greater Clements, I would say, is another example of that. Uh, I had mentioned the same issue with the show Seared, the play Seared that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and several other examples. So I think that, um, you know, I guess that's a talent in itself when you're a playwright or a composer, lyricist, uh, because it's wonderful to be able to write great material, but also very, very important to know when you have to cut stuff out. And um, and on that note, uh, you know, it, it's it's amazing. I, I, I hadn't made this connection until I'm just saying it right now. But I recently came across uh, there was a program apparently at the. Uh, Library of Congress years ago, where a bunch of people, DC theater people, performed a whole bunch of material that was cut from West Side Story. Now, um, I think we've we're aware of this material because we've read about it, and, and actually, the lyrics to some or all of it are included in those two books that uh, Sondheim wrote, uh, "Finishing the Hat" and "Look, I Made a Hat." 
But uh, on this recording, you're able to hear the lyrics sung with the music, uh, much of which remains in the show in the prologue, for example, et cetera. Um, and it's just absolutely fascinating to hear all of this stuff that was thrown out. Some of it is quite good on its own. Uh, it just didn't seem to work with what else they had written. And then there are other sections that just maybe are really not that good. Uh, so the, the fact of, you know, the genius of Bernstein and Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence and Jerome Robbins to say we, that stuff has to go uh, is an example of maybe something that's not present in uh, some of our current day playwrights and directors and producers, et cetera. That, that's definitely my feeling after several shows that I've seen recently. Um, Jagged Little Pill, of course, is another show that uh, the score consists of pre-existing songs written by Alanis Morissette. I'm not sure if every single one is, but... No, uh, not everyone. Not everyone. Most, yeah. But but most of them are. And yeah. uh, I thought, um, I don't know how you felt, uh, Peter. I thought some of them felt uh, seemed to fit in very well with the narrative and others not so much. Sure. Um, the song Peter mentioned, and indeed, Lauren Patton gets an absolute incredible ovation for this song, You Ought to Know. But it's, I have to say, it seemed, the song seemed kind of like a, a little bit of an overreaction uh, to the situation that was presented. Uh, uh, and if and if some of the details of the plot, as written by Diablo Cody, had been just a little bit different, then I think the song would have been even better motivated and maybe would have gotten even more of a response. I mean, the way it is now, the audience is responding to it because she sings it so incredibly well, and it is a great song in itself. But it really, uh, the anger, the incredible, intense anger and frustration that she exhibits in this song relative to what's going on in the plot seemed to me just kind of odd. Um, back to the editing thing, I just, uh, there's so many issues in this play, this musical. Um, and I saw a, a interview recently with Diablo Cody, uh, I don't know if she was being defensive or just completely honest or a combination of both. But she said, um, you know, she was aware that she has been criticized for that. And she said she did it intentionally and and on purpose because she feels that that's the way many people living today feel that there are so many bad things in the world uh, going on and that sometimes we don't know where to turn and sometimes we turn um, to opioids, of, of course, um, in this specific case, as Peter mentioned, the uh, Elizabeth Stanley character is supposed to have started on them because she she was in an accident. Uh, so that she didn't just start taking opioids because she mm -hmm. because she's depressed or because she wants to dull her senses. Uh, but uh, and, and I think that's a very valid point on Diablo Cody's part. But that said, if you're going to deal with so many different things from opioid addiction to porn addiction on the part of the father, uh, workaholism, if that's the word for it, uh, teenage rape at a party, uh, transgender issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you do try to deal with all of those at once, it makes it far more difficult, I think, for the writer and uh, and the director, I suppose. So 
I don't think they were completely successful here. I do think it probably would have been a better show if they had focused a little bit more and and edited some of that stuff out. Uh, and that's my that's my take on Jagged Little Pill. I enjoyed the music very much, basically going into it cold. Uh, there were one or two songs I felt like I'd heard before, uh, but uh, you know, it's just not my background. So I, I went into it cold and I enjoyed the music and lyrics, although I do think they're not, um, I, I guess you might say they're quite simplistic or mm-hmm. uh there are there aren't a lot of chord variations uh, let's put it that way uh, the, and the lyrics i feel the same way about peter uh pretty good overall but some uh some annoying moments of false accents and false rhymes and things of that sort all right so that is a jagged little pill that is happening over at the broadhurst uh and we will have a link to their pay, their uh, website in the show notes, and you can uh, check out some of the videos and stuff that they have on their website. It's a really good website. This week on Broadway is being sponsored by Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon is a company that sells high-quality men's basics for clothing and everyday, everywhere, at a great price. From head to toe, Mack Weldon has you covered in comfort from underwear to socks to tops to bottoms. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, shirts, socks, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. On a personal note, I've been wearing my Mack Weldon stuff for about six weeks now. I love the Intrepid Long Sleeve Polo. I've got a bunch of those in all different colors. They are so comfortable. And even better is my Everyday Extended Crew socks. The socks are so soft and make your field feel great all day long. Broadway Radio listeners can get 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com and enter the promo code BroadwayRadio. That's MacWeldon, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com and enter the promo code BroadwayRadio. MacWeldon offers free shipping on orders over $50 and free returns always. The next uh, thing up, we have uh, Peter got over to Park Avenue Armory to see Judgment Day. So, Peter, why don't you tell us about this? Oh, will I ever. Um, I seriously mean this. I think it's one of the greatest things I have ever, 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 ever have seen. Um, I was just knocked out by it in every conceivable way. Um, People have said to me, oh, you think it'll move to Broadway? No, it won't. Now, um, that's not because of particularly commercial reasons, but you need space for this show. And that is why they are at the Park Avenue Armory, which does have the space. And it. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> what's the story? Well, um, we're in a small little town, a European town, and uh, we're at a train station where uh, the station master has the responsibility of turning on a certain signal when trains approach so that um, one won't run into each other. Well, there's um, a very um, sexually interested girl who uh, has a fancy for him, and she distracts him, and she kisses him. Um, He doesn't want any part of this. He's married. And for that matter, um, he's married to a woman who's 13 years older, and that's going to become an issue in the show, too. And um, because she kisses him, kaboom, uh, the trains hit each other. 
Um, and what happens after that, I am certainly not going to say. What I am going to say is that this play, originally written by Otto von Hobath and adapted by Christopher Chin, who we certainly know from a number of shows off and on Broadway, um, is uh, quite potent. Um, it, it, it keeps us interested every step of the way. It deals with the fact, um, more than anything else, that one lie can only lead to another, which can only lead to another, which can only lead to tragedy. But the real amazing thing about it is Richard Jones' direction. Now, Richard Jones um, directed Titanic on Broadway and also the first production of La Bette, which is one of my favorite things of all time, too. So, um, but this, he has never, well, I don't know about never, but certainly not in this country, painted on such a large canvas. There are two enormous, enormous set pieces that are lugged around the stage like crazy. Uh, one is the station. One is uh, a viaduct. Um, and one opens up to show some uh, interior uh, scenes. But, whoa, um, watching this is, is really the ultimate in seeing directorial genius. No other word is can possibly be used but genius, considering what's going on here. So... Um, Everybody in it's quite fine, and it's sort of surprising to see some people that we uh, know from the past um, in this show. I mean, I I didn't see who was in it before I went, and I was amazed. You know, is that Harriet Harris up there? It sure is. And uh, Tom McGowan, who was in La Bette, who had to take over from Ron Silver at a moment's notice. And believe me, <laughs> that's a very difficult role, including perhaps the longest speech ever given by anybody in any play. So it's nice that uh, Richard Jones entrusted uh, Tom McGowan once again to, uh, to be the father of the girl. So uh, a tremendous achievement. Um, I hope you can get a ticket. It's there till January 20th. Um, I will never forget it as long as I live. And um, I, 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 <laughs> I, I guess I've praised it enough, but uh, in a way I haven't. But anyway, this w will be the event of the season, I am sure. Peter, uh, the uh, website says January 10th. Oh, yeah? So let's, uh, uh, you know, try to get sooner than later. I don't know if it's been extended and that their website's not updated. No, but... it's probably my mistake. I, uh, but uh, anyway. Um, uh... Get to it sooner than later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Excellent. So uh, I'm going to uh, put a link to this in the show notes so you can get to it immediately. And, uh, you know. Don't be second this time. <laughs> so. Got it. All right. So that's uh, Judgment Day at Park Avenue Armory. This episode of This Week on Broadway is being brought to you by ShowTickets.com. ShowTickets is your go-to source for the best deals on Broadway and off-Broadway shows, New York City tours, and more. Right now, you can save over 40% on tickets to see Frozen, 35% on Oklahoma, 25% on Waitress. Plus, check out our blog for exclusive interview content for the stars and creators of Broadway's latest and greatest, as well as dining guides, itineraries, theater news, and more. ShowTickets.com has everything you need to make your next trip to New York City one to remember at prices you'll love. What are you waiting for? Check us out today. ShowTickets.com. Peter and Michael both got a chance to get over to the Mitzi Newhouse to see Greater Clements. Uh, so, Mike, why don't you give us a start on that? Yeah, as I said, this is another case where the blue pencil would have been a, a really, really appreciated. Uh, and in this case, I hate to say this, but I walked in, I asked about the running time because I had heard 
certain things. And I was told 2.20. And the actual running time is just under three hours. So I don't know what purpose is served by being untruthful with an audience like that. Uh, there are two intermissions in this play. Uh, so that's part of the reason why it's so long. But anyway, uh, even allotting for a somewhat late start, just a little late, uh, I, it, I think more truthfulness in that area would be really appreciated. And then I don't know if you guys have read, but on top of all that, there is a huge issue with this show in terms of sight lines mm. because of the uh, two things, the set, the design of the set by Dean Laffrey, which features um, these huge metal posts that are how can I describe this? Uh, that are used as the uh, the the mechanism on which part of the set rises and falls uh, during certain certain portions of the play. But the posts are there all the time, so they're not wide, fortunately. So you can kind of look around them, but depending on where you're sitting, that could be an issue. And then on top of that, we we are in the uh, in the Mitzi Newhouse, and there are seats in areas that would normally be either backstage or at least on stage, you know, against the upstage wall, let's put it that way, if there's an upstage wall. Uh, And so normally there are not human beings sitting there watching the show. And apparently those seats seem to be, uh, uh, extremely obstructed because of, furniture and props on the stage so there have been multiple multiple complaints about this and the house staff has had to deal with it and it's all kinds of very very bad press for the show which is too bad because uh although it's too long uh it there is a lot in the writing by samuel d hunter that's very very worthy and the cast is just great judith ivy who one of our great actresses i would be more than happy to see her on stage even more frequently than I do see her, which is fairly frequently. Uh, this um, uh, wonderful young actor named Edmund Donovan, who only has a few credits, but has gotten tremendous praise for this performance as he should. He plays her son who um, is a very troubled young man, shall we say. Uh, The setting here is, uh, it says, a small mine tour office and mining museum in a tiny town in northern Idaho and the year is 2017. And the situation is um, that the, the town is very well, more than depressed. It's basically on the brink of uh, going out of existence. They voted to unincorporate the town, and uh, it's gotten to the point where now the, the street lights aren't going on anymore. So uh, there are very few people left in this town, and uh, the mine has been closed for years. That's the main reason why why the town is so depressed. And uh, there, we were told that there had been a horrible, horrible accident in the mine years earlier, and that figures into the plot. Uh, there are several other characters here, uh, more than there probably need to be, and just a lot of repetition in telling the story of the relationship of this mother and son and 
what's going to happen and whether this son is going to uh, uh, be able to overcome his his um, his challenges in order to uh, to become a worthy member of society. And there's a, uh, a a budding romance, perhaps, between Judith Ivey's character, Maggie, and a man who she had known years, years, years earlier who comes back into her life. And we think that maybe she might get together with him and he might, in a way, rescue her by taking her away from the town. And uh, maybe giving her some happiness in a life that hasn't been very happy at all. We we learned that her husband uh, was gay, and that was a that was not a relationship that ended well. And and then we learn a lot about um, her son Joe, as I said, played by Edmund Donovan, and and the problems he has had, and the great pain that that has caused her. So I guess this is supposed to be a metaphor for. Um, <laughs> America, you know, certain towns like that, places like that in America breaking down and how uh, this country is not what it used to be in so many, so many ways. And the changes that have occurred in this country are so seismic. And there are people who just don't seem to fit in anymore. Um, Very, very worthy subject and lots of involving characters and plot points as well. But I just felt that it was overstuffed and repetitious and did not need to be three hours long. All right. Peter, what did you think? Um, I liked it substantially more than um, Michael did. Um, I, 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 partly because um, this Edmund Dunneman, uh whoa, oh, I um, know. This, this is a troubled kid. Um, he pulls on his T-shirt. He scratches his leg when he's not lifting the other one backwards. Um, he gives eerie looks after he finishes every sentence, um, every sad explanation of why he acts the way he does before zeroing in on the person that he's speaking to with eyes that are narrowed to slits that are both challenging and begging for mercy. So um, that's just amazing. Uh, yes, Judith Ivey's quite wonderful. When is she not? Um, but this is the guy who essentially steals the show. Um, I will say that Judith Ivey has always been wonderful, of course, with facial expression and, and vocal intonations. But here she's even more effective in the way she uses her hands and her arms. They're a show of themselves. So notice that when you go and i do think you should go i like this uh play substantially more than michael and um i i really um uh, was surprised at certain things in it now what had happened was it's established that joe did some sort of anti-social act uh some years ago and uh he became a town pariah okay and um <laughs> The strange thing is the antisocial act he did, you know, we're wondering, what is it? What did he do? Oh, my Hmm. God, because he seems to be capable of anything. While certainly it was nothing good, it was nothing as horrific as so many other things we've heard about. But he does have this very strange disorder. Now, I did check um, to see if I could find anything on this disorder, and I couldn't. Um, unlike some years ago, there was a play, I don't remember what it was called, but, um, it dealt with the fact that, uh, some boys 
actually fall in love with their mothers and wind up um, having sex with them. And that's a real thing. I'll never forget intermission. Everybody's turning on their iPhones to see if this is a real thing. You know, um, and I did find that that is a real thing. But I didn't find this um, in any of the strange syndrome things that I've seen Um uh, and it may be something and I just didn't find it. But anyway, it's a very strange thing. And um, it did cause him to leave Idaho and go to Alaska, where uh, things did not work out there either. So there's a lot of drama in this piece. And um, frankly, there there were no easy solutions because, you know, this uh, gentleman fr- who from uh, Maggie's past who comes in, uh does have his own problems and while he's interested in her romantically it won't be a walk in the park if they get married either because bad times are coming with him um and for that matter uh the guy if he married maggie would have to take on this responsibility of living with joe and you just don't know what this kid is going to do next so what's really great great is that we really think that joe has done something far more serious than the thing that initially got him in trouble it really looks like he's done something horrific beyond belief. And we are then taken to a flashback where we find out that he's really capable of an act of heroism. And that's really nice. What a shame that nobody else in town who have the understandable doubts about Joe get to see it because he makes the perfectly right decision, hmm. wonderful decision um, in, in handling the situation. Now, frankly, I hate plays where uh, people overhear information that they're not supposed to be hearing. And um, Joe cuddles up to the door where his mother and her uh, would-be husband um, are cavorting. And um, he he finds out um, a lot of what his mother thinks of him. And um, I hate scenes like that. Do you notice in Sweeney Todd that um, Toby suspects something is wrong? He doesn't walk in on them, mm. um, you know, <laughs> cooking people. Mm. No, he started, something's wrong here. I just have a feeling. Uh, true. Eventually, he does find the fingernail and that's proof positive. But the fact is people can suspect things. They don't have to walk in. They don't have to overhear. You know, mm. that's 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 kind of lousy playwriting. So anyway, so I did have an issue with that. And also, there's a strange thing in the staging. Now, Michael mentioned these poles and um, the set goes up and down like crazy. Um, so it, to indicate two levels. And then suddenly near the end of the play, Judith Ivey takes one step. Uh, from what should be <laughs> the second floor to the first floor, just taking one step, no staircase, nothing like that. And it seems to uh, break the uh, the um, rules of the game. Uh, improvers um, would go crazy at this because this is the type of thing called bad mime. You know, when you, you do something that wouldn't happen in real life, they try to be as, as accurate as possible. And for some reason, it seemed like the director said, oh, the hell with it, we're at the end of the play. Just go ahead, just step off. Don't worry about it. You know, and um, but I thought that was odd. But otherwise, I think this is a really compelling play. Um, and um, you have to see this Edmund Donovan. It must happen. And I imagine he's going to get a lot of the Off-Broadway Awards at the end of the year. I would also recommend seeing it uh, for his performance, which is indeed phenomenal. Uh, he was previously in The Snow Geese. 
and also Lewiston Clarkston, which is another play by Samuel D. Hunter, uh, who obviously likes him. And we can certainly understand why. why yeah. yeah. The thing is, you know, I'm telling you, it was like five minutes into his performance that I was looking to see if he had any other credits because I said, whoa, if he hasn't, if this is debut. I'm, I'm going to lobby for a Theater World Award for him. But alas, um, it, it, he has been around, so I can't uh, do that. But there will be other awards to compensate for him. Yeah, I actually missed him in those other two shows, but I I did the same thing you did. I was like, who <laughs> is this guy? Sure. But you know, I had I had to wait till intermission because I didn't want to d- just disturb anyone and be rifling through the playbill while the while the play was on. Oh, I know. <laughs> uh, so I I did that. But yes, you should see it for him. You should see it for Judith Ivy. And much of the play is is really wonderful. I just uh, I do think it's overwritten and also. Please make sure that you ask specifically uh, about your seat. Oh, by the way, I have heard that um, the seats are on the far side of the stage. Um, I'm not being sold anymore. Oh, really? So I've been told. That doesn't mean it's true, but it is somebody who works at the theater who told me they're not selling them anymore. Um, So um, I think maybe one of those problems will be solved. And of course, the grosses will be less. But first things first. I'm not surprised to hear that because uh, there has been quite a bit of publicity about it. And 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 Lincoln Center, I do have to say, at least they're, they're very responsive to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So bravo for them. I mean, the mistake probably shouldn't have been made in the first place. But since it was made, they they did what's necessary to write it. And that's mm-hmm. really very commendable. Mm-hmm. They probably saw that that cafe that they had in network on with <laughs> Cranston, you know, they thought, yeah, we, you know, like a few thousand bucks Good every performance. You. There, you. You know. But, you know, most restaurants in New York City fail, so. Boy, this, don't they. This one moved on. Mm. All right, so that is Greater Clements at Lincoln Center's uh, Mitzi Newhouse Theater. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And uh, next up, Peter, you got to see the Sorceress at the... Uh, National Yiddish, Yiddish Theater Folks Bene. Did I get that correct? Folks Bene is the way it's actually pronounced. Um, now, uh, one of my colleagues went and said, well, it's no fiddler on the roof. No, it isn't. You know why? Because it was written 86 <laughs> years before Fiddler on the Roof. And one of the charms of the sorceress is seeing what a Yiddish, mm, they say operetta, and to a degree that's uh, certainly true. But it, 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 what's really quite terrific by this wonderful organization, uh, Model Didner, uh, directed as if it were a musical comedy. Uh, well, a musical play. Um, it, it's not a comedy per se because the, the themes are um, very, um, and the plot uh, are, are, are not happy-go-lucky because what we're dealing with is uh, uh, a father who's being imprisoned unfairly, uh, and uh, we're dealing with his daughter uh, who's left with her stepmother, and because this is was written in the late 1800s, all stepmothers were wicked then, and she uh, basically turns the girl into Cinderella, uh, doing her beck and call. Now, meanwhile, the girl has had a suitor, and um, he is going to move heaven and earth to make sure that um, this doesn't um, remain a, 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 a situation where um, she is going to be oppressed. Um, she does wind up uh, escaping from the home, and uh, he has to find her, and um, yes, the, um, I, <laughs> I think um, you can imagine, uh, because it was a musical of the time, even with the serious themes, that they will live happily ever after. 
Um, and also, you can, you can really feel the dollops of comic relief that come in from time to time. They're perfectly positioned after things get a little too hairy. So um, now this is the organization that started that Fiddler on the Roof revival that uh, has been playing off-Broadway. And we'll be closing soon, I'm sorry to say. And if you haven't been, you must go, you must go, you must go. Um, so anyway, this is all done in Yiddish. Um, and a lot of them learn it phonetically. Um, the leading lady um, who plays Mirella um, is um, uh, Jasmine Gorsline. Um, I think I heard in the lobby, which doesn't make it true, that uh, she's not Jewish at all and certainly um, had to learn it all phonetically. And... Um, they really do a terrific job um, making it seem like this is their native language. So there are super titles, uh, both in English and in Russian. So if we have any Russian listeners out there, and I imagine we don't, uh, but if you, <laughs> you'll be able to understand what's going on there too. Uh, charming, charming little production, but this is what Folks Bennett does. And it's wonderful that we have one theater at least in the city. I wouldn't mind two or three more, but thank God we have one that really is essentially keeping that Second Avenue tradition alive. Uh, there was a time when Second Avenue was filled with all these theaters that did exactly this type of fare. And in fact, Boris Tomaszewski, who was the big wheel, um, along with Jacob Adler in those days, um, discovered this show and uh, made it happen originally. So, um, and for those who know obscure musicals, um, he was essentially um, lionized in The Prince of Grand Street, a Robert Preston musical that never came to Broadway, only played Philadelphia and Boston. That was the end of it. It had a lot of good stuff in it. And um I saw a gypsy run through and um, but uh, he really was a, a mover and shaker in those days. And he's the one who made this happen. And um, it's nice to have it back where it belongs in lower Manhattan. And uh, because this is very close to um, uh, the Statue of Liberty. Um, <laughs> needless to say, there's some water between that and uh, the uh, the Museum of Jewish Heritage. But um, it's fun, you know, when you get out or approaching it to see the statue in the distance and be reminded that uh, a lot of the people who were in Yiddish theater saw that statue, came here, and then started Second Avenue Theater. So it's it's rather fitting that it's that close to the statue. So I can highly recommend the Sorceress. With all its um, pre-Oklahoma, pre-showboat type of, um, shall we say, put parentheses, I'm sorry, uh, quotation mark, uh, mistakes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but uh, come on, for 1878, it's terrific. And the fact that it's being done now terrifically is what's really the bottom line. Are you guys both familiar? I'm sure you are with this Broadway backstage special that they do on ABC TV. I've heard um, yeah, I, I caught it last night, and, and one of the segments was a little bit on Fiddler. And uh, Stephen Skybell was being interviewed, and he just was talking about how it just did his heart so, so, so good to know how this production has been embraced, this production in Yiddish. And he said it, he thought it was practically a miracle the way it had been embraced in a commercial off-Broadway production that's now run for a year and a half. A miracle and, of miracles. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think we've made that point before. <laughs> but uh, but I, I so agree with him. And, and it's, it's wonderful how, I mean, Fiddler is phenomenal and a beautiful experience just in itself, but also to make so many more people aware of the company. Mm -hmm. uh, and now I'm sure that, you know, that increased awareness will continue and people will be more 
cognizant of what of what they're doing in the in the future, including this show that Peter has just told us about. And uh, Fiddler in Yiddish has broken that chain of uh, yeah yeah at the little Schubert you know? the curse the, the curse of the uh, now now stage forty two is that mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah so uh, wonder what's going to be next in there did I think they they said what was coming next didn't they Don't I didn't know. and the uh, uh, Barry Manilow's harmony. Uh, yeah, right. They pushed that back for another year. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. said they had scheduling issues with uh, everybody involved with it. Uh, so we were looking forward to the Barry Manilow's Harmony in 2020, but I think it's going to be 2021 now. Right. So. Yeah. Broadway Radio is being brought to you by listeners like you. Patrons who support us at patreon.com slash Radio. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Broadway Radio. When you support Broadway Radio, you will get the benefit of early access to our broadcast before anyone else. Financial support for Broadway Radio will help us continue to bring our broadcast to you through 2020 and beyond. Once again, that is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Broadway Radio to become a supporter. All right. So, Michael... Uh, last Tuesday, you got down to 54 below, and there was a, was it a birthday party last week, or was that the week before? So, <laughs> tell us about Tuesdays at 54 with Robbie Rozell. Yeah, this is Robbie's series, which uh, has now been canceled, uh, but it is going on through January. He has four of them in January, I, I checked. So you should try to get to one of those. Uh, he is a very hilarious and charming host uh, of this variety show that, that he's been doing there for some time. And I guess it's just, uh, you know, it's hard to... Uh, keep something up like that on a on a on a very set schedule indefinitely. So it has been canceled for whatever reason. He joked about it because he'll say anything. <laughs> <laughs> he, I really have to hand it to him. He went, uh, even though he was very public about it. I won't name the person. He went after a certain producer. Uh, not not of his show. Uh, there was another incident that's been in the news recently, and Robbie went after the producer of this show involved in that incident and just really uh, w- was joking about that throughout the show, and I was gasping <laughs> because the person in question is quite powerful, but, um, mm. you know, whatever. And and so a- afterwards, I, I after the show, I got to speak to Robbie briefly and i said yeah i said you really have balls going after blank and he said well what's he going to do cancel my show i'm already been canceled mm. <laughs> so, so i you know i have to hand it to him but anyway it was a wonderful addition his guests were great uh several people i knew and some that i didn't uh jason forbach is uh, someone you may know. He's been in a few shows, including Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis on Broadway. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful voice. Uh, opera quality, really. Uh, and another guy that I had never heard of who's done Book of Mormon is uh, this fellow named Jordan Matthew Brown. Uh, tremendously charming and, uh, and very, very uh, engaging on stage. What just just wonderful. Then um, some people I knew, Marty Thomas, 
uh, who's been in a ton of shows, including Xanadu and Wicked, and who has a new album uh, that he sang from. I, I think the song is on his album. Actually, I'm not completely sure, but he sang a song uh, that has always been one of my favorites. It's a standalone song by Jason Robert Brown, not from a show. And it is called Someone to Fall Back On. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you both know that song? Mm-hmm. It's on Jason's, I, uh, Jason's yeah. um, album. I love that song. I think the message of it is uh, so great. It's basically, I'm not, you know, I'm not some Prince Charming. I'm not a knight in shining armor. I'm not the answer to all your prayers. I'm not going to solve all your problems. And I may not be the love of your life, but if you need me, I'm someone to fall back on. (laughs) And it's a great song. And Marty did a superb job with it. Um, Then another guest that uh, Robbie had at this edition of Tuesdays at 54 was Donna Vivino, uh, the original young Cosette in Les Mis. Uh, And she did sing a little bit of Castle on the Cloud just for nostalgia's sake. And that kind of brought a tear to my eye because that, you know, yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty classic show, and and you know, it's a long time ago, and she was a kid, yeah. and now neither one of us are kids anymore. And no. you get you get my point. You'll never be a kid again, kiddo. Yeah, uh, okay. but Donna also sang a, a song from a show she got to do uh, regionally somewhere. I, I'm, I'm I'm not sure where. Uh, she sang "I Miss the Mountains" from Next to Normal. And it was just beautiful. So it was a great night. Luke Williams is Robbie's cohort at the piano, and he played everything just beautifully. And it's a one that the, the an example of the kinds of great entertainment that happens constantly at Feinstein's Fifty Four Below. So do check their calendar. Uh, as I said, four dates in January, I believe, and. Uh, uh, Tuesday on Tuesdays as as per the title. So check it out and see if you can get there. I, I think you'd really enjoy it. All right. So uh I'll have a link to the fifty four below site where you can pick up Robbie's tickets. The uh they have a list of the uh people uh in the cl- in the shows from January seventh, fourteenth, twenty first, and twenty eighth. So you can uh pick and choose and go see one, go go see all of them, and that'd be great. So, Peter, you uh, got in the Felicia Mobile and mm. uh, traveled far and wide to Connecticut and New Jersey, where you uh, answered the question, can anyone whistle? <laughs> well, certainly. Um, <clears throat> one would have to whistle in admiration at uh, the production of Anyone Can Whistle, none at the Hart School, which is part of the University of Hartford. Um, John Pike did the direction. Phenomenal. Imagination at every turn. Uh, Calvin Bittner did the choreography. Terrific beyond belief. Um, This, by the way, was the legendary part of Anyone Can Whistle during its short run in 1964. It um, opened April 4th. It closed April 11th. I had a ticket for June 3rd. Oh, well. Um, But supposedly the choreography was really marvelous to the point at which it got a Tony nomination. Now, that's pretty good for a show that runs dive performances. But I'll tell you, while I didn't see it, and I'm sure that Herbert Ross, (laughs) yeah, that Herbert Ross who became a big movie director, uh, did a phenomenal job. Calvin Bittner did an amazing job with choreography, so it was really something. Now, one of the things about listening to the original cast album, with, of course, a score by Stephen Sondheim, is that um, Harry Guadino was not a native singer. Um, ironically enough, years later when he was in uh, Woman of the Year, he sounded better. So I have heard on the day of the recording of Anyone Can Whistle, which was a miracle in itself uh, in a show that deals with miracles, 
that uh, indeed um, he wasn't well. So um, that could very well be. But to hear Isaac Cooper do that wonderful song with so little to be sure of and a uh, spirited rendition of Everybody Says Don't. And um, a lot, of course, he has to do in that mammoth number called Simple. Um, he did a wonderful, wonderful job. I really enjoyed uh, Paige Buade as uh, Cora Hoover Hooper, the mayoress who uh, certainly doesn't just take no prisoners. Uh, she executes them. I mean, so um, that's that character. And she really um, was fun. Pike cast it so well. I mean, you looked at everybody in this cast and you knew that everybody was doing the part that he or she was born to play. That's so wonderful. And of course, a lot of this um, falls on Faye Apple, Lucy Rhodes, in this case, who um, has to not only play um, a nurse, but also has to play um, a French va-va-va-voom type uh, woman. And she did both quite beautifully. I adored the costumes by Stephanie Genda. Terrific. First time I've ever been to the Hart School. It won't be the last. Um, um, needless to say, because this is a school that really uh, concentrates on vocal technique, uh, the voices were quite wonderful. And uh, that was really uh, part of the thrill of seeing anyone can whistle. So ironic. This is the fifth time I've seen the show. Five times. That's almost as many performances as it had in Broadway. So this is a show that does not die. And um, and while a lot of people, including me, you know, think that a lot of it is kind of hokey and what have you, and what were they thinking? Sure, sure. All that um, is is quite very much in place. I think even today, if Arthur Lawrence were alive, and certainly Stephen Sondheim would admit that it was um, not just ahead of its time, but a, a little hokey at points. And um but, you know, for a show that's 55 years old, suddenly, um, uh, there are so many assets to it, especially that Sondheim score. Um, and uh, also those Don Walker orchestrations are wonderful, though I've always wondered what Jonathan Tunick would have done with this um, show. Don Walker was an old pro. I mean, he, he went back, in, I think, in the 30s, but uh, he did a lot of shows, and he was a terrific orchestrator. Don't misunderstand me. But um, considering this is such a wild and woolly show, in fact, I think it was even subtitled, well, you know, they used to advertise every show as a new musical, you know, that type of thing. I think this one said a wild new musical, and um, that wasn't <laughs> untruth in advertising, believe me. So, so yes, yeah, so that was Friday night and Saturday morning at 11.30 in the morning. I was at Kane University um, in Union, New Jersey, in a small room where Dan Kuttner, K-U-T-N-E-R, directed a reading of A Family Affair. The 1962 musical with music by John Kander and lyrics not by Fred Epp. They hadn't met yet. Um, Richard Seff was greatly involved with this. Richard Seff was uh, Cheetah Rivera's agent, and he was John. He went to um, see a, a musical that John Kander had written. Remember, John Kander was a dance arranger. He did um, uh, music for both Irma LaDuce and Gypsy. And um, so... Uh, he, Richard Seff went to a backstage station. I think it was a, a musical of an Anouye play, I think. Um, but anyway, he they couldn't get the rights, something like that. But John, um, Richard Seff said, whoa, this guy could write music. So uh, he was very interested in a family affair, which he was writing with, as it says here, the Goldman brothers. That sort of sounds like a, a, an accounting firm, a Goldman Sachs type thing. That's James and William, who would certainly go on to do uh, many wonderful things in their career. Uh, Goldman, of James Goldman, of course, for Follies, and William Goldman uh, for uh, the season, the book. But uh, for those who uh, don't follow Broadway very much, uh, they know him from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and All the President's Men, 
which got him Oscars, and deservedly so. But anyway, once upon a time, these three got together and wrote a musical. And it's it's uh, about the difficulties in putting on a wedding. That's what it's about. You know, uh, the, 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 the young kids, um, originally played by Larry Curtin, Rita Gardner, what a small little thing in a house, you know, just in, uh, that, that'll that be nice, you know, just a few people. Yeah, right. Well, when you have um, uh, parents of the groom who have their own opinions, especially the mother, and um, you also have um, the original Broadway production played by Shelley Berman and Uncle, we're never told uh, what happened to the, the girl's parents but um he's the uncle well here um they decided to make it into a woman and um you know in a way that worked better because um i i think if if this is sexist i apologize but i think i think women are inherently more interested in weddings than men are so to have a man say no 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 we're not going to do it this way we're doing it my way isn't as convincing as having a woman doing it and um you know i'm I'm sorry if that uh, offends anybody but um, i do think there's something to be said for that i will say that i wish the um little piece of paper they gave us told us who was playing what they just listed the um names of the people who were in it so i can't say wow wasn't that woman playing the Shelley Berman role great? Wow, wasn't that woman playing the Eileen Heckert part wonderful? Wow, wasn't that guy playing the Morris Karnowski or, or, or the other two parts, um, the Kurt part and the Gardner part? Um, you know, really, uh, it uh, it's too bad that I, I'm not able to uh, commend these people per se. By the way, the original cast album um, was um, recorded on United Artists Record, and I think it was the first time they ever did an album, and they just didn't know... Um, how to do it terribly well because um there's a, a the song that most people like most in the show is called harmony and um harmony um in the back they just list uh, who sings it by the last names so so you got lavin and there's nothing on the front cover that has the word linda on it but that's who that is <laughs> you know and uh, so um i i omitted something important richard seft not only um worked with john kander in making the show happen but when nobody would produce it his cousin who instead uses the name sif as opposed to sef s-i-f-f as opposed to s-e-f-f andrew sif said oh what the hell i'll produce it and um and this the reason that uh, it was done had to do with the fact that um dan um has has worked with had worked with harold prince in the past and he felt you know Let's do the first show that Hal got a directorial credit for on Broadway. And um, the original director was Word Baker, who had just done The Fantastics, which one of the reasons why Rita Gardner was in the show, because she was the girl, the original girl in The Fantastics. So, um, but then Hal Prince came in, and Prince has always maintained that if there's just a little more money, if he could have had like two more weeks, he could have made it better. I've talked to, I, I did talk to William Goldman about the show, who said with a shrug, it really just wasn't good enough. But, um, and it, it, and of course, a lot of it's terribly dated about, you know, how women should react to men and give them their way and how women try to get men to do what they want in a manipulative fashion. So, I mean, it, it, it doesn't hold up. I mean, this is not something that um, you'll ever see a Broadway revival of, and I'm not even sure Oncos will get to it unless they feel, well, John Kent has been awfully good to us, you know, with that Chicago show that turned out to be uh, <laughs> quite a sensation. <laughs> so, um, so you might see it there, but it, it, uh, it is um, very dated in that way. And I hate to say dated because I, I usually like to think of time capsules, but, um, but still, 
the opportunity to see a family affair doesn't uh, grow on trees. Mufti did it some time ago, but uh, with Leslie Kritzer being very, very fine, I remember. Um, but um, uh, here it was, these, these game kids um, sitting in a room on chairs and getting up every now and then. And um, what was really great is that Dan said, these, when you go out into the world, you're going to have to do 29-hour readings. So that's what we're doing here. We're giving you 29 hours to do it. And what a great exercise to get them used to doing 29-hour readings. I think that's terrific beyond belief. So as a result, um, it, it was quite a feat to see that they did it all in 29 hours, which, again, proves <laughs> that famous theory that work takes as long as you have the time to do it. So, um, But still, they were, they were exemplary and wonderful, wonderful characterizations. They knew what they were, where they were coming from. And so nice to see a young audience in there that um, wasn't um, condescending towards um, a very old show um, that probably their grandparents weren't even alive to see. So um, it was quite nice to see them really um, get into the spirit of it and really enjoy it tremendously. So the moral of the story, <laughs> take a look and see what's being done at your local colleges. You may be very well surprised. There may be an anyone can whistle. Uh, there may be a family affair. <laughs> there may be uh, Rachel Lilly Rosenblum, who knows? But the point is, you should pay attention to what's going on in the college in your area because um, I have seen wonderful college productions over the years and um, I, I still enjoy going and I'm very, very impressed that we have so much wonderful talent coming up. And that was truly exhibited both at the Hart School and Kane University. Well, two things. I mean, what an amazing theater trip for you. <laughs> Those two shows in one trip. Uh, <laughs> that, that's incredible. But also, I'm glad you mentioned Hal Prince because I think I almost forgot. I just wanted to make sure our listeners realize that tomorrow is the Broadway memorial for Hal Prince. Mm. Uh, at the Majestic Theater, uh, the doors open at 1 p.m. and it's set to start at 1.30. Uh, I imagine it will be very well attended, but I usually do they do manage to get everyone in uh, mm -hmm. for these things. So just just a heads up, I, uh, I'm definitely going to try to be there. I think this will be one of the historic Broadway memorials of that type. He mm -hmm. was a great, 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 legendary, incredible man of mm -hmm. theater. And it's the, just the fact that uh, that even this show that Peter just mentioned is, you know, a very minor uh, uh, footnote to his career. But but mm. he but he's, he was still there, you know. Mm -hmm. OK, so before we end for the morning, Michael, you wanted to say a few words. Well, I wanted to note the passing of René Aubergenois, a great actor who was in one of the first professional shows I ever saw in my life in 1972. Vivian Beaumont Theater, Lincoln Center, uh, directed by Ellis Rabb, a production of Twelfth Night, in which Mr. Aubergenois was Malvolio and Blythe Danner was Viola. And Stephen McCaddy was Sebastian, Philip Bosco as Antonio, Leonard Fry as Sir Andrew Aguecheek, and Moses Gunn as Orsino. So imagine, you know, a, a high school 
freshman being exposed to that. It was just incredible. And I, uh, his name stuck with me from the beginning because it, it's so unusual, René Aubergenois. Sure. And I, I think I had started, I had started studying French, uh, fortunately, <laughs> already by that point. So I was able to wrap my, you know, my head and my, my mouth around the, the name, uh, but it always stuck with me, and he went on to a great career. He, uh, I did not see him in Coco, uh, for which he won a Tony Award, but he did so much else. And uh, and again, he's one of those people you read his resume, and you you there are things that maybe you even forgot that he did, or or, or and or didn't even know he uh, he was in the film version of Mash. And he, of course, I had sort of forgotten and then remembered he uh, was the voice of the the chef, the crazy chef uh, who sings Les Poissons in the original animated film of The Little Mermaid. Uh, those are just three, three or four of his amazing credits. Um, he, he was also in, uh, I hesitate to mention, Dance of the Vampires on Broadway. <laughs> so he really ran the gamut. But but he um was a wonderful character actor could seemingly do anything very very different types of roles and uh it's a great loss to the theater but i'm glad i got to see him in so many things all right so that wraps it up for today before we get on to the question for trivia. I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to this broadcast by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you'll be able to find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact Information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have the uh, question for this week? Yes. Two Best Musical Tony winners that won their prizes nine years apart both start their overtures in the same way, but a most atypical way. Explain why while also naming the musicals. All right, if you have an answer to that and you don't want to be second or third, get on it right now. <laughs> uh, you can email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Still, honestly, you don't believe me, but the things I have are the things you need You look at me like I don't make sense Like a waste of time Like it serves no purpose I am no prince I am no saint And if that's a one that